Back in the late 19th century, if you wanted to see the latest motion picture, you wouldn't go to a movie palace, but more likely a penny arcade. You would approach a large wooden contraption resting on the floor. It was about two feet wide and four feet tall. For a nickel or so, you would look down through a viewing peephole on the top and see pictures that move. You might see a man sneezing or, or blacksmiths at work. Maybe any Oakley shooting glass balls, a couple kissing, Mary Queen of Scots getting her head chopped off, or even a couple of little kittens boxing. Short and without sound, these motion pictures would still amaze, as no one at the time had ever seen anything like it before. You have experienced Thomas Edison's Kinescope. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello there. My name is Jeff Kelly, and welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. It's the first Monday of the month, and that means a history lesson. Now, class, so far we've talked about Edward Maybridge and his Zoopraxiscope and Louis Le Prince and his mysterious disappearance. But today we're going to look at the controversial Thomas Edison, a man who gets a lot of credit for the development of the motion picture. In fact, some even give him the title of the inventor. Is that justified? That's what we're going to discuss today. Now, Spencer Tracy reaches the very pinnacle of his career. He gives to the screen, to you, his finest performance as Edison the man. The man as well as the genius. His loves, his fears, his life work, his warmth and his keen, jolly humor. This vivid, living portrait of the Wizard of Menlo Park will rank as one of the most stirring, imaginative characterizations of the screen. It is a story of breathless excitement as Edison fights his way toward the most miraculous discoveries of modern times driving himself and his men, keeping only a step ahead of debt and disgrace, but winning amazing victories in the most thrilling series of success stories, in fact or fiction. Now, Thomas Edison was responsible for some great things. That being said, he also gets credit for a lot of things he did not himself invent. I mean, most people give him credit for inventing the electric light bulb, but the truth is, he did not invent the incandescent light. Nor was he the only person working on the bulb at the time. We'll get into that in a minute. A lot of the inventions that Edison received patents for were actually the work of his team of inventors. And that's sort of a gray area. I mean, even today, if you work for a company and you invent a product, it becomes property of that company. But in Edison's case, he seemed to go out of his way to create a legend of himself being almost a sole inventor. He was great at promoting himself. He's also been accused of just slightly improving already existing products and then reaping the rewards. And of course, Edison could be very litigious when it came to others infringing on those patents. 
Now, before we get into his involvement with the motion pictures, I want to talk a little bit about who Thomas Edison was. After all, there's a lot of myths about the man, of what he did do and didn't do. So here's a brief history. He was born Thomas Elva Edison on February 11, 1847, in Milland, Ohio. His parents were Samuel Edison Jr. and Nancy Elliott Edison. He was the last of seven children, and from those seven, only four survived to adulthood. He had little formal education, most of his education coming from his mother. He was close to his mother and credited her with him becoming the man he became. By the time he was 12 years old, he was working on the railroad between Detroit and Point Huron, Michigan. The railroad even let him set up a lab in the mail car. During this time, he published his own weekly newspaper, the Weekly Herald. He was also an avid reader, consuming every book he could find about invention and technology. His interest in inventions probably began because of his hearing problems. No one's really sure the cause of these serious problems, but it might have been due to scarlet fever, mastoiditis, or a blow to the head. You see, at the time, he was working as a telegrapher during the Civil War, but because of his hearing problems, it was difficult for him to hear the auditory signals of the telegraph. So he began working on a device to make it easier, such as a printer that would convert the electronic signals to letters. And he must have liked the innovative process because in 1869, he quit his job to pursue inventions full-time. He worked out of Newmark, New Jersey from 1870 to 1875. His focus at the time was telegraph-related products, first for the Western Union Telegraph Company and then for other companies as well. During that five-year period, his mother passed away, and he also married a 16-year-old girl named Mary Stillwell. By 1875, he was having financial problems, but with his father's help, he was able to build a laboratory and machine shop in Menlo Park, New Jersey, 12 miles south of Newmark. He employed many people, and it is said they worked long hours throughout the night to create and invent. It was in Menlo Park that he created the invention that would make him world famous, the phonograph. His first recording, of course, was Edison himself yelling, Mary had a little lamb. After that, the inventions began to roll out. They came up with things like the carbon transmitter and, of course, the safe, inexpensive electric light. The Wizard of Menlo Park was on a roll. Like I said, the idea of the electric light was not new. Many people all over the world were working on it. But Edison had something the rest didn't, and that was money and a workforce. It wasn't like he just woke up one morning and thought, hey, I know how to make this work. But instead, he had his workers try everything they could think of, almost haphazardly, until they found something that worked. Thousands upon thousands of different material were tried as a filament until they found just the right one. He once said, Before I get through, I tested no fewer than 60,000 vegetable growths and ransacked the world for the most suitable filament material. You notice that Edison always uses I and not we, right? What you might not know is, since there were so many people working on the electric bulb, 
Edison had to sue for six years to get a patent. And in the end, he had to share that patent with another inventor, Joseph Wilson Swan. Of course, Tom was more than an inventor. He was also a businessman. And as a businessman, he got busy building power stations and laying power lines. There was money to be had, and Edison was going to make sure he got the money. The problem with this whole thing, of course, was that he was using DC current, which wasn't practical for electrical distribution. So much energy got lost in the transfer that you had to have the power station like a mile or so away from where it was being used. So in comes in Nicholas Tesla, but I'll get to that in a minute. Of course, not everything Edison did was successful. But did he consider those failures? He is quoted as saying, I have not failed 10,000 times. I've successfully found 10,000 ways that will not work. What might have been his true genius was to not put all his eggs into one basket. I'm thinking of the Wright brothers. All their efforts went into the airplane, but what if that plane never took off? They would have probably spent their whole lives selling and repairing bicycles. One thing that makes Edison stand out as an inventor was that he was very good at reducing the risk of innovation, said Leonard de Graff, the archivist at the Thomas Edison National Historical Park. He's not an inventor that depends on just one thing. He knows if one idea or one product doesn't do well, he has others that can make up for it. There were things like the electronic voting machine, the electric pen, and a talking dial, all of which failed. But it didn't seem to bother him. He once said of the money lost, we had fun spending it. And then there was, of course, his experiments with x-rays. These experiments cost his employee, Clarence Madison Daly, his whole left hand and four fingers on his right, and then his arms, and then his life. Edison gave up working on x-rays, saying, Don't talk to me about x-rays. I am afraid of them. Like I said, he was not only a businessman, but a ruthless one at that. He saw the world as, You're either with me or against me. It was black or white. No middle ground. A prime example is what is known as the War of the Currents, his battle with Nikola Tesla and Westinghouse. Tesla, while working for Edison, invented alternating current, a much better way of delivering electricity than Edison's DC current. That's why it's all in our homes today. The problem was, AC current would make all Edison's valuable patents connected with DC, worthless, and he wasn't about to lose all those royalties. Another reason he might have not only resisted, but downright refused to accept AC was that AC was much more complicated to deal with than DC. Edison understood DC, but AC was far beyond him. So he fired Tesla, refusing to give him the money he promised. Tesla took his invention to Westinghouse, and the battle began. Since Edison couldn't out-invent his competitors, he instead began a ruthless campaign to destroy Tesla and AC current. He took this to the point where he was electrocuting stray animals using AC current to prove to the public just how dangerous this form of electricity was. It was a whole campaign of misinformation. 
You know, I can't imagine Spencer Tracy electrocuting small cats and dogs. Now, Edison, for his whole life, was against capital punishment, but suddenly he encouraged the use of the electric chair for executions, as long as, well, the chair used AC current. He had the goal of the public associating AC current with death. In the end, both men lost, but that's a story for another podcast. The sad part is, with a little foresight, Edison could have kept AC and, instead of destroying it, found a way to use both AC and DC. But now it's time to talk about the invention of the motion picture. Before I get into that, why don't we find out what's on Nancy Fry's mind? Take it away, Nancy. Hello, folks. Time for Nancy's Natterings, or whatever this segment is turning into. You've probably deduced by this point that I like movies, or as we used to say back in the day, the moving pictures. One of my favorite genres is historicals, or costume dramas. I'm also a sci-fi buff, and when you combine sci-fi with history, you get another one of my favorite genres, time travel stories. Not content to merely read or watch time travel stories, I wanted to experience it. So by the time I was into my teens, I was into historical clothes and material culture. There was no internet back then, so I got my information from reading historical novels, reading history books, and watching historical film and television. I wanted to live in the past. Later, it would dawn on me that living in the past meant no antiseptics, anesthetics, or hot and cold running water. So I decided just visiting was the better option. In my college years, I discovered the wacky world of historical reenacting. These are the people who study history by doing it. Medievalists, neo-Victorians, Civil War reenactors all fall into this category, and I've participated in just about all of it except maybe Roman legions. At one point in my life, I ended up living in the Bay Area of California. I was heavily into American Civil War reenactment at the time, where I started out as a Confederate cavalry trooper, then a sailor, then switched sides to drive wagons and an ambulance for a Union artillery unit. I met some amazing people, including my second husband, through this hobby. One of the people I met was my friend Elizabeth. She's an architect who also loves historical clothing and cooking and everything else. She was also a big fan of traditional oriental dance. You might know oriental dance by its modern westernized term, belly dance. I can't remember the inciting incident, whether it was around the campfire one night after a day of robbing trains in the Santa Cruz Mountains, around the punch bowl at a Victorian ball, or at a potluck at somebody's house, but somehow... We came up with the idea of doing old-world, old-style belly dance. We had no interest in modern belly dance, with its full orchestras, skimpy costumes, and sequins. We wanted to emulate the professional folk dancers of Egypt and North Africa. Characters like the infamous Little Egypt, who was in reality a number of different dancers using that name throughout the late 19th and early 20th centuries. There's plenty of documentation for folk costumes of the world, but reading about dance isn't a great way to reinvent it. Several books on the origins of belly dance reference footage shot by Edison, or more likely his associates, including one by Donna Carlton literally named Looking for Little Egypt, which is literally what we were doing. 
If you go to the Library of Congress website and search the Variety Stage Film Collection, you'll find a window into the history of ethnic dance in America. Unlike the Black Maria footage, Edison's Variety Stage films were shot at places like the Chicago World's Fair in 1893 and the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York in 1901. Some of these very short documentary films, or actualities as they were called, are clearly of the dancers imported from Algeria and elsewhere, while other clips are most likely priceless documentation of burlesque performers who blended a few ethnic moves into their existing hoochie-coochie style and called it Oriental. It all helped us add some authenticity to our existing folk dance vocabulary, and for several years we had fun performing as 19th century Oriental dancers at reenactments, parties, and sometimes our local Moroccan restaurant. Edison may have been a cad, but time travelers like me are grateful his films have been preserved for the ages. Thanks, Nancy, and I must say that while listening I was thinking, as interesting as it was, and it was interesting... I was thinking, now where's Nancy going with this? But you're right, it's so wonderful that many of these short films survived, like the footage of the legendary Annie Oakley showing off her sharpshooting skills. But now it's time for me to get into the story of how Edison invented the motion picture. Edison's interest probably began on February 25, 1888, when he and his company's official photographer, William Kennedy Laurel Dixon attended a lecture by Edward Maybridge in Coust, Kentucky. A few days later, Maybridge and Edison got together and had a chat. Maybridge had been interested in combining his zoopraxiscope with Edison's phonograph for both sounds and images. While this didn't happen, later that year, Edison filed a preliminary claim with the U.S. Patents Office announcing he had plans to create a device that would do for the eye what photographs did for the ear. It seemed at the time he fully intended to create a complete audio-visual system. It was William K.L. Dixon that Edison put on the job. And while it was Dixon who did the main work, it's hard not to give Edison a lot of the credit. The whole motion picture system wouldn't have been possible if not for Edison providing the resources, the vision for the invention, and the electromechanical knowledge that was used in its design. Combining Edison's expertise with Dickerson's knowledge of photography worked out well. Of course, Edison's involvement is still debated today. There's a lot of Edison haters out there who will tell you he did nothing, but who really knows, right? I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Edison took sole credit for all the products that came from his laboratory. Early, they experimented with a cylinder, similar to what they used for sound, but this also proved impractical. A short film called Monkey Shines No. 1 was shot in 1889 for testing, and this is considered the first American motion picture. Edison took a trip to France where he met Etienne Jules Marais, who was a French scientist and physiologist. Marais had also been inspired by Maybridge, and he invented the chronophotographic gun, which he made in 1882. This device looked like a shotgun, but took 12 consecutive images a second with all the frames recorded on the same picture. He used these to study animals like horses, birds, dogs, and others. This gave Edison ideas, and he and Dickerson used this gun for the basis of their camera. 
But there was a problem. The paper used for the photographs was not suitable for what he had in mind. It was much too fragile to run through a camera or viewing system. Celluloid was invented in 1888 by John Corbett, but his stock was too stiff to be rolled. So the following year, Henry Rockenbach and George Eastman of the Eastman Company, later Eastman Kodak, developed an even more flexible film that was much easier to use and could be stored in rolls. George Eastman happened to be a friend of Edison, so Tom went to George for help. George began manufacturing 50-foot rolls of celluloid. Now, Dickerson created some important elements to the motion picture system that would be used for the next century. Now, you couldn't just have the film smoothly run through a camera or projector. For the camera, the film needs to come to a complete stop, let the shutter open and close, then move on to the next section, and it has to do this 30 or 40 times a second. And of course, while projecting, if the film didn't pause for a moment or two, only a blur would be visible on the screen. To make the film stop at a consistent interval, he first put sprocket holes in the film to let it be grabbed by a mechanical arm, and then he modified the mechanics of a clock using the same technology that lets it operate at set intervals to move the film one frame at a time. The camera he invented shot up to 50 feet of celluloid at the frame rate of about 40 frames per second. They called this new camera the Kinescope and the projector the Kinograph. David Robinson described the Kinescope in his book From Peep Show to Palace, The Birth of American Film. He wrote, It consists of an upright wooden cabinet, 18 inches by 27 inches by 4 feet high, with a peephole with a magnifying lens in the top. Inside the box, the film, in a continuous band of approximately 50 feet, was arranged around a series of spools. A large electrically driven sprocket wheel at the top of the box engaged corresponding sprocket holes punched in the edge of the film, which was thus drawn under the lens at a continuous rate. Beneath the film was an electric lamp, and between the lamp and the film, a revolving shutter with a narrow slit. As each frame passed under the lens, the shutter permitted a flash of light so brief that the frame appeared to be frozen. This rapid series of apparently still frames appeared, thanks to the persistence of vision phenomenon, as a moving image. It was at the National Federation of Women's Clubs on May 20, 1891 that Edison first demonstrated a prototype of the kinescope and kinograph. Patents for both were filed on August 24, 1891. The kinescope began commercial operations on Saturday, April 14, 1894. These were featured at 1155 Broadway in New York City, a parlor owned by the Holland Brothers. Soon, parlors like this were popping up in cities such as San Francisco, Atlantic City, and Chicago. But Edison's team didn't have the foresight to understand that people might want to watch the films in a community atmosphere. Instead, what they created was basically an arcade machine. The invention, while successful, was doomed to failure. You see, Edison thought this new device should be in the same vein as his phonograph machine for homes and arcades. There are those that believe that he actually discouraged William Dickerson from pursuing projection. This might be why the two had a falling out. Dickerson left the Edison Company in 1895 and helped found the Biograph Company, 
one of the first big studios in America. In 1898, Edison sued American Mutoscope and Biograph Pictures, claiming the studios had infringed on his patent for the kinograph. In 1902, the U.S. Court of Appeals ruled that although Thomas Edison had patented the kinograph, he only owned the rights to the sprocket system that moved the film through the camera, not the entire concept of the movie camera. His camera, by the way, was so heavy it could only be used in a studio, and that led to the building of the Black Mariah in 1893. The Black Mariah, or is it the Black Maria? I'm uh, not sure. Anyway, it's considered the world's first film production studio. The name is said to have come from its resemblance to a police patrol wagon. It was built on the grounds of the Edison Laboratory at West Orange, New Jersey, for the purpose of making film strips for the kinetoscope. It was a structure that was pretty amazing. A long building covered with tar paper that had a retractable roof for letting in sunlight. But its most remarkable feature was that it was mounted on rollers, a revolving pivot, so the building itself could be constantly repositioned to keep it in line with the sun. One of the first films shot there were three people pretending to be blacksmiths. Edison's film studio made about 1,200 films, and most of them were just little moments of life, such as Washing the Baby in 1893, Fred Ott's Sneezing in 1894, Cat's Boxing, also in 1894, and A Couple Kissing in 1896. But then they also moved into historical epics, like The Execution of Mary Stewart in 1895, which was an 18-second long depiction of the beheading of Mary, Queen of Scots. This might have been the first film, at least in America, that used special effects, the camera was stopped long enough to replace the actress playing Mary with a mannequin so they could chop off the head. But the films at the time were limited to around 16 seconds, and like I said, could only be viewed by one person at a time. That would make for a very dull film-watching party. I think Edison saw this as a mild amusement and didn't understand its potential. Could you imagine watching a film like The Batman standing up and looking down into a wooden box? Edison's invention soon had competitors. Others were making kinograph-like machines, but selling them for a lot cheaper. Edison fought back by creating the Kinephone, which he introduced in April of 1895. This was similar to the kinograph, but it also had sound. This was Edison's initial dream, to combine motion pictures with the phonograph for pictures and sound. It worked like this. You still looked down through the peephole to see the visuals, but there was a soundtrack played by a phonograph in the cabinet, and you listened to it by putting tubes into your ears. But it wasn't long before projected films became popular, and both the kinograph and the kinephone soon faded. In later years, once projection films were popular, long after the Black Mariah was demolished, the Edison Manufacturing Company moved into longer films such as Edward S. Porter's The Great Train Robbery from 1903, which was 12 minutes long and used different sets, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland in 1910, and the first film version of Frankenstein, also in 1910. 
All three are available on YouTube and worth a watch. They all contain pretty neat special effects. One of the most disturbing films that came out of the Edison Company was the execution of Topsy the Elephant at Luna Park, Coney Island. They filmed as the large elephant was electrocuted. Though I did read that Thomas Edison himself had nothing to do with the electrocution or the filming of Topsy dying. Edison's company continued to make films and in December 1908 formed the Motion Picture Patents Company. This was his attempt to control the film industry by bringing together his company and all the major studios of the time in what was known as the General Film Company. In this way, they could shut out all smaller producers. Yeah, an independent filmmaker could make a film, but they couldn't get it shown in the theaters. In 1915, the Motion Picture Patent Company and the General Film Corporation were found guilty of antitrust violations and then dissolved. Because of this and World War II, which caused the loss of the European markets, Edison was hurt financially, so he sold off his interests in the film business. Howard Hawks and John Wayne, who gave you two of the classic westerns of all time, Red River and Rio Bravo. Now add Robert Mitchum to the combination in El Dorado, the story of two close friends who didn't need any enemies to start a war. What the hell are you doing here? I'm looking at a tin star with a drunk pinned on it. Help me up out of here, Cole. A pair of bullheaded battlers who lock horns and then join forces against the best guns in the West. And with them, Charlene Holt as Maudie, a fine figure of a woman. A new young star, James Kahn as Mississippi. Michelle Carey as Joey, part girl, part wildcat. Arthur Hunnicutt as Bull, an old reprobate who blows a loud horn and draws a long bow. A beat-up band of misfits with nothing to lose but their lives. There's a little question unanswered between us. Which one of us is best? A little bit before I go. So what's my opinion of Thomas Edison? How much credit should he be given for the invention of the motion picture camera? And, I guess, industry? Well, I guess a bit more than perhaps I gave him credit for. Even if it was just financial backing, that's enough. And I don't know if this is true for everybody, but I think at least for people of my generation, we were taught about Edison as almost being a saint a kindly old inventor creating products to help all mankind. And then you grow up, you research it a little, and it becomes clear that he was more interested in the financial rewards than helping humanity. Reality, right? Like finding out about Santa Claus, I guess. Anyway, my friend Russell from Australia wrote me and said he acted ruthlessly in business but that was simply the way things were done in those times of robber barons and social Darwinism. You may be right, Russell, but, but yet I don't think highly of those robber barons either. And just because it was how things were done, well, that, that doesn't make it right either. There were a lot of awful things in history where you could say, well, that's just how they were done, but you know. Anyway, I think that's probably a discussion for another day. I do thank you, Russell, for all the information you sent me. It gave me a bit to think about. 
Now in the show notes for today's episode, I'll have links to the sources I used and links to the sources Nancy sent me. Those were links to the clips of the films she was talking about. Next Monday is the second Monday of the month, and that means I'm going to talk about one of my favorite films. For something different, I'm going to talk about El Dorado, the 1967 Howard Hawks film starring John Wayne and Robert Mitchum. It's on Hulu and also available for like three bucks on Amazon Prime. Now, I had this lifelong mystery that this film was the answer to, and I'll explain what that was next Monday. So I'm always looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. I have an email address for the show. It is daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of Celluloid, all being one word. And look, you can even email me if you just want to say hi, you know. I would appreciate it. And if you have a suggestion or a comment or you want to correct me or anything like that, yeah, email me. You can also use my Coffee with Jeff Facebook page or my Coffee with Jeff Twitter page. Someday I'll get around to setting up pages for Celluloid Days. And wherever you get this podcast, if you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, I'd be forever grateful. Well, thanks to Nancy Fry for sharing a bit about herself, and thanks to Russell for all the information he provided me. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening. Hey, you take care of yourself. I'll be back next Monday. Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. Multi-pass. Lena, uh, multi-pass. You know this multi-pass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing.